This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink, mom of four boys. And I'm Janet Allison, teacher of many more. Thanks for joining us as we share real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. I first heard of our guest from a mom friend of mine who has adopted twins, and she was so excited to go to this summer camp in Georgia where, as she said, many people look like her. So she's a white mom who has adopted kids of color, and it has been quite a journey for her, and she just gained so much wisdom from our guest and we just had to have him on with us. You know, parenting is so rewarding, but it can be really challenging. And for most of us, those challenges are normal and our kids are really doing fine. But for some children, life has dealt some additional challenges from being in foster care to adoption to trauma, autism, attachment disorders, and these kids are vulnerable and their behaviors can be so challenging. And that's where Brian Post, our guest, comes in. He has been working with those kids who need extra care and extra love. And I am so happy that you're with us today, Brian. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. You know, your approach is really dynamic and interactive, and it's helping the whole families of adoptees, of foster kids, and, you know, just regular old families as well. Thank you, ladies, for having me on. I'm excited to be with you. Brian, it's so great to have you here. You are one of the founders of the Post Institute for Family-Centered Therapy. And let's just start there. Tell us what your mission is and how you came to be helping families in this way. So I was an adopted child. I had a sister who was also adopted. We weren't biological family members. And, um, but we, you know, being adopted, we grew up together. And we both of the two of us had a lot of challenges growing up, um, a lot of behavior issues, but I actually had more behavior issues than she did, but she was the one who had the greatest conflict with my parents. Mm. So both my mom and my dad were adults of alcohol, were children of alcoholics, and they were both parentified. They were the oldest in their, their sibling groups. The, the challenge with my sister is that she was... Uh, fetal alcohol exposed. She was premature and she was in an incubator for three months. And she, therefore, she was emotionally arrested. So she was emotionally immature throughout her life. And as a child with parentified parents who, who were kind of hyper responsible, that was just like the perfect formula for World War III in my home. Oh boy. So my parents and my sister did not do well. My mom actually used to say that when we adopted you, you were smiling. And when we adopted your sister, she was crying. And that, that really, I believe, formed uh, some core imprints for their working relationship, parent-child relationship. And so I believe that so much of, of what I do and why I do it is inspired from my earliest earliest experiences and that even goes back to in utero just from my own adoption 
But um, yeah, we had challenges. We were challenging children and my parents were challenged and they did the best they could. But uh, it was a very stressful scenario. And I know for a fact, when I got into doing clinical work with families, that was a motive. It was a, it was a deep motivation to see families, to see parents understand their children better. That's really what it, for me, what it became about. And at that early point in my career, it was to help parents see their children differently. Then that evolved into helping parents understand themselves so they could then understand their children differently. And that's kind of where I'm at now. It's just about helping, helping us to understand how stress and fear and subsequently trauma play out in the lives of children and adults mm-hmm. and how, how that intersection creates a lot of stress in families. Let's talk about trauma because I write about health and I write about education. I have uh, learned a little bit over the last few years about, you know, the effects of trauma on the brain and on the body and how that can become an issue in education and parenting. But this is, it, it hasn't disseminated out there yet. So explain what you mean by trauma, what, you know, counts as sure. trauma for a child and how can that affect parents? You alluded to that when you mentioned that your parents it sounds like they had their own traumas that affected them i don't believe that there's anyone in our society who's living hasn't experienced some level of trauma trauma and and i've been teaching trauma for 20 years and so it's just it's funny when just now we're starting to talk about being trauma informed which the problem with being trauma informed is that you can understand trauma and be informed about it but that doesn't mean you're trauma responsive and so really what we need to be able to do is be trauma responsive Um, more than just being trauma-informed. Otherwise, we're just giving lip service to it. But trauma is any stressful event. And this this is what's so important. It's any stressful event which is prolonged, overwhelming, or unpredictable. And when that event continues on, unexpressed, unprocessed, and misunderstood, that forms the difference between a short-term stressful experience and a long-term potentially life-altering traumatic event. So it's any stressful event. And that's, we like to limit trauma, but especially if we're mental health professionals, we like to limit trauma to physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect. Um, if we're in the, uh, if we're police officers or firefighters or, or um, EMTs, we limit trauma to car accidents and fires and, and uh, explosions. But trauma occurs every day. Every day someone's experiencing some kind of overwhelming, unpredictable, stressful event, misunderstood stressful event. And that those events have the capacity to change the brain. And that trauma can, as you said, can happen in utero. Oh, from the, from the fourth week after conception, the fetus is capable of hearing. From the, from the second trimester, the fetus is capable of psychological processing. This comes from Thomas Burning. Um, he, he's the author of a book 20 years ago called The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. He's a, a psychiatrist, a physician scientist, who's just studied all, spent his whole career in pre-verbal psychology. The impact, and I'm convinced that the impact of the first nine months has as much, if not more, of an impact on our relationships, our social and emotional relationships, as any other stage in our development. And I see it time and time and time again. 
that early experience is so transformative to how the brain processes human interactions. It's amazing. I can see a lot of parents feeling really overwhelmed right now because obviously if you have adopted a child, you had no control over those first nine months. And even if you gave birth to your child, you know, shit happens, frankly. Absolutely. Right? And so uh, every single day. So I don't want people to feel like, well, great, my kid was ruined before he was even born. And now what? Well, see, here's the thing. It's not about being ruined because at that level, you know, we've all had experiences that cause us to be shaped and wired the way we are. It's about understanding. You have to understand. The problem in our society is we discount. We discount everything. We discount, we discount, if you, you've adopted a child at three years old, you discount the inner utero all the way up to the three. If you adopt them from, from birth, you, you discount the nine months. And every, we're always discounting experiences because of the way we think about experiences. And we don't like to think about things that make us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's about understanding Because if you understand where your child, and you don't have to know, you don't have to know all the details. It's about, like, if I understand that you're adopted, then I can understand that you're sensitive to stress and you easily get overwhelmed. Bottom line. Bottom line. If I know you're adopted and you were in foster care for five years and you you experienced physical abuse and neglect in foster care, now I know you are highly sensitive to stress. You are easily fearful, and that drives your negative behaviors. Easy, simple understanding. But the problem is we, don't, we like to make things real complicated, and, and we don't have to. And we so can- often we, we adults just see the, quote, unquote, bad behavior, the kid who doesn't listen, the, kids who, the kid who is having a tantrum, and we think, well, that's just a bad kid. Here's the other kicker to that. We like to blame ourselves. Yes. Yeah. We are so quick to blame ourselves for our children's behaviors. Even if you're a school teacher, a pastor, a counselor, if a child's misbehaving, the first thing you blame yourself. The reason we do that is because of the way our brain's hardwired. Our amygdala is always looking for a threat. So as soon as our amygdala sees a, sees a problem behavior, it interprets it as a threat. And we immediately think we did something to cause it, whether you're an adult or whether you're a child. And when you immediately think you did something, the reason you immediately think you did something to cause it, because as soon as your amygdala sees the threat, it goes into your brainstem, into your old memory bank, and it tries to make a connection and an association of what you've experienced before. So as soon as it makes an association of what you've experienced before, you're now in an unconscious place. Now you're not even conscious. You think we think we're conscious, but we're not. We're we're being driven so much from our unconscious experiences, and we take our children's behaviors, we take them personally. And when we take them personally, that's when we lose relationship. So Brian, what do you say to those parents who are taking it personally, who feel like their child's behavior is their fault? You know, it's, it's a, it's a, that's a fantastic question, Janet, because just yesterday I was talking to a parent and I asked her, I said, when your daughter makes that facial expression to you, what does that make you feel? And she said, 
Well, it doesn't make me feel anything. And I said, well, if it didn't make you feel anything, you wouldn't have any kind of reaction. So what is it that that facial expression is making you feel? And she said, well, I feel like I'm probably doing something wrong. And she said, and then I pointed out to her and she immediately changes her facial expression because she wants to please me. And I don't want her doing that because that's not real. I said, but it makes you feel, it makes you feel like you're doing something wrong. And if that makes you feel like you're doing something wrong, her facial expression makes you feel like you're doing something wrong. What does that feel like? She said, it makes me feel guilty. Bam, that's where we need to be. We've got to slow down and own our own process. We've got to look at our own internal reactions. I've been parenting for 20 plus years and I still feel that guilt on a daily basis, on a daily basis. So what you are telling me, what you're telling all of us is that that's normal. That's part of how our brains are wired and there are better ways to handle it, more productive ways to handle it rather than getting lost in all of this blame which tends to lead to shame, which can lead all kinds of negative places. 100%, and what I'm, what I'm gonna tell you, uh, even, even a step deeper than that, is that if you've been carrying that guilt that long, that guilt probably comes from some early childhood experience, and it could potentially come from a birth imprint that you experienced between your mother and your father. It gets that, that deep. I have chills. And, and it is absolutely normal. We see it's the it's the judgment of the feeling that becomes the problem instead of the observation of the feeling. When you observe the feeling, the feeling can change. But when you judge the feeling, you increase the intensity of it. You are talking about uh, it may come, you know, even pre-birth and interactions with parents. We're touching on uh, generational trauma, how trauma really can be and is passed down. Through generations. Amen. Amen. And research has been proving that for, for decades. And at the same time, you're telling us we can change it. 100%. 100%. I sat with, with five dads last night, all of them with extensive trauma in their histories. They're all on this, this radical journey to be better dads. That in and of itself is breaking generational chains in and of itself. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So how do we start? You know, you're, you're working with a family. Uh, you get across to the parents that, hey, this may be what's going on. As you well know, as we all have learned in our lives, it's really hard to change ingrained patterns of thinking and reacting. It is. It is, but you have to take that on as, as the task. And, and you, don't, you don't try to do all of it. You just try to pick the bits and pieces where you're being the most reactive. If your child is lying, if your child is defiant, if your child's rolling their eyes, if your child has aggression issues or your child's stealing, start with one thing. Start with one thing, and the first question you ask yourself is, how does that behavior make me feel? And why does that behavior make me feel that way? And when have I experienced that behavior before in my life? Begin that process of self-analysis. 
when do my kids most get on my nerves? When they say something that sounds exactly like what their dad used to say to me, you know, before and during the divorce. So yeah, there's a lot of truth here, Brian. Yes. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to encourage our listeners to just take a deep breath and let it out. Because I imagine your brains are going all different places back to, you know, when you were a child. And as I work with families, we always look at how were you raised? How was anger handled in your family? And then, and that's families who know their ancestry. And then you put in children of adoption and foster children, and that history isn't even there that continuum or thread is not there so then you're you're dealing with a mystery and i really like what you said brian about yes i think we are becoming more trauma informed but your point of becoming trauma responsive is where we need to be now in our schools and as parents and professionals can you tell us how we can be more trauma responsive. We learn to be trauma responsive by realizing that trauma informed is just a cognitive component of understanding. Trauma informed is just learning. Trauma responsive is the emotional response that goes into how you actually show up and remain present in the face of of any kind of trauma-driven or stress-driven behavior. So being trauma-responsive is an emotional emotional dynamic that supersedes cognitive. So I've started doing this thing where I take a, I draw a circle and then I think about it in fours and you take a quarter of that circle, you, you draw a quarter of that circle and that's cognitive. That represents your left hemisphere. If you then shade in the other three-fourths of that circle, that's your right hemisphere. That's your emotional brain. Your emotional brain dictates to your thinking brain. Being trauma-informed is about thinking. Being trauma-responsive is about feeling. And so when you're thinking about being trauma-informed, and you know it's it's an unfortunate thing, but most trauma-informed practitioners and most trauma-informed information, the first thing they start talking about is the child. As soon as they do that, they've already missed the boat. It's like the ship that leaves the dock off by one degrees and within hours, they are going to be on the whole other side of the world. Because when you're talking about trauma-informed, you're talking about trauma-responsive, the first person you have to look at and talk about is yourself. We have to understand ourselves. You made a statement, Janet, that becomes a layered situation because you bring in adopted children, families adopt children, they don't understand the histories. Well, here's the beauty of it. Parents get overwhelmed by their adopted children's behaviors who they have no idea what the children's history is, but they get overwhelmed by the behavior because the energy of the adopted child actually triggers an energy in the parent that's already there. And so now it's, it's, it's always, it's always a perfect, a perfect dance. It's a perfect dance every single time. The vibration of the adopted child vibrates with that adopted parent at a level that the adopted parent just hasn't wanted to deal with. And that's what all the conflict gets created. Wow. So interesting. I did not realize before I became a parent 
that being a parent was really going to mean I had to look at my stuff. Like I had all this stuff that I had just safely, you know, tucked away and this doesn't bother me anymore. And uh, I have learned the hard way that being a parent meant I had to unpack some of that and look at some of that. And I think that's what I hear you saying, Brian. 100%. We, we have to realize that parenting, whether biological or adopting or fostering, grandparenting is more than just raising kids. I mean, we, we have to train up children in the way they should go, but before we can train up a child, we have to be effective dis- disciples. The definition of discipline is to teach. In order to be an effective disciple, you've got to help your child be in a state of learning that is optimal so they actually learn. And what we end up doing is we end up getting stressed out and trying to force concepts on children and they don't learn them and we get more stressed out. And that's because we're not stopping to determine how can we be more effective disciples? How can we have more effective discipline, which is to teach, not to punish? And it starts being an effective disciple and, and truly um, enter into offering effective discipline starts by looking at yourself. So I remember my daughter, I've got, I've got two biological daughters, one 16, one 24. My 24 year old is a social worker in Oklahoma city. And I've got a 26 year old adopted son. But I remember when my 24 year old was three and we were in a swimming pool, just she and I, and we were in the swimming pool and suddenly I felt so incompetent. I didn't know how to play with her because my parents had never played with me. And I just, I've, I've actually experienced a moment of just being helpless. And I looked around and I was looking at the other kids and the other parents that might were playing and I just took a step back and I took a deep breath and I just honored it. And, I, and this was before I knew any of this psychology stuff. I was actually a practicing clinician at the time, but new clinicians don't know anything. <laughs> and I just, I, I just stopped and I was like, wow, I don't know how to play. And so I need to try to figure this out. And that's the thing. If we'll just see, I could have said that my daughter was being demanding. I could have said that she was just spoiled. I could have said that she's just being a brat, but it was none of those things. It was my feeling of inadequacy. And I just had to realize in that moment what I was working with, and that I had to figure out how to do things that felt good to me that also felt good to her. And we just slowly figured it out. And I believe with all parents, if we can just slow down, and this, I, I'm not into diagnosis and I'm really not into medication. I feel like before we, before we medicate children, we need to exhaust all of the relationship and the environmental variables for change before we do that. And I I just believe that if we can just slow down, if we'll just challenge ourselves to think about what are the things that we're doing that create more stress, make a list. I've always, in my lectures, I've always said, think of the three things you're doing that are creating the most stress in your relationship with your child. 
because the relationship is all that matters. The behavior doesn't matter. The relationship dictates the behavior. Relationship leads to influence. If you're focusing on behavior, you're just focusing on control. So think of the three things that you're doing that create more stress in the relationship and think about three things you can do that reduce stress. And then you do less of the three things that are increasing stress and do more of the three things that reduce stress. And you'll be surprised how far that'll get you. You have to look at the stress and the fear. That's the key. How helpful is it, in your opinion, to have other similarly minded parents to be able to talk to as you're working your way through this? Uh, It's one thing to make a list and say, this is what's causing stress and this is what I can do differently. And the reality of trying to practice a new response and new behaviors is very difficult to do on a day in and day out basis. It is vastly helpful to have a support network. However, you want your support network to be committed to love and relationship, not stress and fear. Mm. There is a big difference because if you get a group of stressed out, fearful adults together who are working with stressed out, fearful clinicians, you're going to have a nasty, nasty situation. Mm-hmm. And, it, and there, these groups are all over the internet. Mm-hmm. And they are all out, they are out, all out to defend themselves against their children. Mm-hmm. And it's professionally perpetuated. But if you get a group of parents that are committed to love and relationship and really looking at you know, our own reactions, and then contemplating and working together to think about solutions for challenges that children have, the dynamic completely changes. Mm-hmm. It completely changes. And do you talk about this in your book? You have a book and you have so many resources available to parents. So will you tell us a little bit about your book and about how people can find you? So I have a book, actually, it's feartolovebook.com. It's a free, people can get the book for free, plus the audio. So it's feartolovebook.com, and it is how to work with uh, adopted children that have challenging behaviors. And it goes, it's it's an overview of everything that I believe from the standpoint that we have to understand the difference between love and fear. We have to understand and be aware of stress. We have to realize that it's not the behavior that needs to focus. It's the stress and fear that needs to to focus. And we have to understand that when our children are misbehaving, we become stressed out and fearful. So the first work starts with ourselves, being aware and being mindful and calming our our own stress and fear so we can then help our children and be supportive of our children while they work through their stress and fear. And all of that is is kind of summarized in the Fear to Love book, but our main website, postinstitute.com, has been around since 1998, and it's just choked full of resources for for parents um, and professionals for how to see children different. It's a it's a new paradigm. I mean, I've I've been I've been 
I've been talking about a new paradigm for 20 years. <laughs> and uh, so everything we do, everything we do is, is geared towards how to create more love and how to overcome fear. It's because I ultimately see that relationship is the single most important thing. And the only thing that keeps us out of relationship is fear. And it's so profound on so many levels. The, the further I've gone in parenting, the more I've realized it's not about which chore chart I use or, you know, before bed routines or what family rules I post on the refrigerator. It is about relationship. And that's not just our relationships with our children. This whole shift towards focusing on relationship and love is how we transform our families and our communities and our schools and the world. Amen. It's how we, it's how we change the generations. It's how we transform the generations. And I always say to parents that this is not about your family right now. This is not about you right now. This is about your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren. The work you're doing right now influences your lineage. Wow. Brian, thank you so much. I know that you have had a profound effect on many, many people's lives and now on our on boys listener listeners and wow i am excited for the possibilities when we focus on love and focus on relationships well thank you ladies for having me and it's uh, been an honor to be able to share thank you so much brian you're very welcome i am so glad we connected today Thank you so much. This is, of course, always helpful to me because I'm still in the trenches trying to deal with children, and uh, I need these reminders as often as I can get them. Thanks for putting it out there. Thanks for joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men. It's impossible to raise boys alone. Join one or both of our Facebook groups. Jen is at Building Boys and Janet has Boys Alive. Ask questions, share your wins, get support when you need it. We'd love to have you join us.